raised children, they're up and out of the house. You've got a theory on uh, vacation with small children. And I think, I think this is the data people are really wanting to hear. Yes. So my theory is vacation is a myth that single or um, childless people make up to torture people with children so that they can fantasize about traveling and relaxing and then they actually do it and they feel worse than when they left in the first place so <laughs> vacation is for grammars and scammers that's what i heard <laughs> i mean it's, my new ver my new verbiage for this is it is a trip it is a family trip we are traveling we are doing the same thing we do at home well more of the same thing we do at home because we work less and run after wild mongoose more Mongoose. Yeah. So, you know, it's Mongo more. Mongooses, I think. I think it's mongooses. Mongooses? Okay. <laughs> no, mongooses doesn't make any sense. Yeah. No. <laughs> with children is real work. Yes. But if you can convince your, you know, parents to say, oh, I want them for a week. The handoff? So then, then, about then the you handoff. can find vacation. That's yeah. the only way. So it's like, Tom Sawyer painting the fence and convincing others that they would rather do that. <laughs> um, I, I don't know how you do it, but you, you work on that. So Jerry, do people, do people by people, I mean your family, drop off grandchildren with you for weeks at a time? Not, not me. No, no, no. I, I saw uh, this coming. I read Tom Sawyer. Um, <laughs> it is what it is. No, no, I, I did I not do that. Is, it is very rare. When we had one, we had no, we now have two. When we had one, we could leave him with my parents and he was okay. They're not able to handle two of them for a few hours, let alone for a week. In January, I am taking my two of my grandchildren. They'll be uh, 13 and 15 at the time for that's a week. Big. But but that's, that'll be the first time. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And that's much easier. And, and as a matter of fact, my daughter is scared to death of leaving uh, two impressionable teenagers. Oh, with, with you. <laughs> I, I was just going to say, at that age, with you, uh, it's not about what they'll get into. It's not about good. what they'll be inspired to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I've got a you know room full of wine, so what the hell? <laughs> oh, my gosh. With that, is everybody ready to get started? Yeah. All right, let's do it. Welcome to the CXR channel, our premier podcast for talent acquisition and talent management. Listen in as the CXR community discusses a wide range of topics focused on attracting, engaging, and retaining the best talent. We're glad you're here. everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Recruiting Community Podcast. I am your host, Michelob, and I'm going to bring in my co-host and spirit animal, Mondello. Hello, everybody. Hello, everybody. <laughs> yeah, Jerry, it's good to see you. Good to see you. Haven't seen you since, uh, well, gosh, a week ago we were, yeah, when we were out at Nike. Nike was, uh, you know, it, first of all, the weather was great. So was, while we're perfect. watching the weather, you know, being over 100 everywhere else, it was it was lovely. Uh, from that point of view, but Nike's yeah. Nike's headquarters, uh, hands down, is one of the most unusual and interesting places anyone would want to go. Yeah, I would. I would put the Nike HQ the, uh, in Beaverton against 
any other. We've probably seen well over a thousand of them. Uh, I have now to be fair, I've not been to some of their biggest competitors campuses, but I will say, I think Nike was doing cool campuses and, and, and amazing campuses long before and on a much bigger scale than the Facebooks and the Amazons. I think we even had somebody who was like, have you been to our campus at the Amazon? Have you seen them? I'm like, I don't think you understand when we say world-class at Nike and their headquarters, we mean yeah. world-class. The fact that they have hundreds of volunteer guides who have to get certified by each other mm -hmm. uh, on the stories that they can tell, um, I think it kind of tells part of that story. So for those who for those who don't know, and as a reminder, this is a live this is a live stream, live chat. So if you, if you're watching this on one of the socials uh, or networks that has a live chat or a little chat window, go ahead and ask questions in there. Share LinkedIn profiles in there. Share whatever you want to share. Talk to one another. Uh, but if you've got questions for the guest today, and we'll we'll get right to her. She's patiently waiting. Uh, we, we'll jump into that, and and we'll make sure we get those all addressed. So with that, coming back to Nike. So. We had, uh, for those who don't know, we had about 30 companies come out where for two and a half, uh, almost three full days, we not only did uh, a fun nonprofit charity work, but we did uh, countless case studies, uh, competitive practice shared, the networks are stronger. And then of course the Epic hosts and Kismet and the, the global head of um, uh, early career and college and campus and recruiting out there for Nike, just a fantastic host. It's always one of my favorite places to go, always. Did you, did you have a big takeaway? Who me? Yeah, yeah, on the topic, not on the campus, but on the. Oh, on the was there an aha or an, or an OMG moment for you? Um, I have a dozen of them. I, I, I there were, <laughs> but the the range of experience was quite broad, and I'm always interested yeah. in whether or not um, we learn from each other. I mean, I believe in it, and um, you know, someone who is just coming into our space. And what they observe to me is great learning or reminding, if you will. And so we had a few of those. There, there were a couple um, fairly new to, to recruiting um, mm -hmm. or to early career recruiting uh, who were doing some amazing work. Yeah. And there were, you know, there were <laughs> solid companies that for many years are still elevating uh, the game. Um, so I'm just I'm just very impressed where things are. Yeah, I liked the uh, the earlier in career perspective. So it was pretty helpful. Uh, so so I'll say that uh, if you we send out an executive summary. So if you're a member and you're watching or listening, we've got an executive summary uh, that will come out uh, in just a couple of weeks where we kind of throw all of that together. We've already shared, uh, I think, 30 some odd case studies and documents. They're in the they're in the online library that everybody contributed. Each company, as you know, comes to a meeting is responsible for sharing a case study and output a question to the group. Uh, but upcoming, I think September 11th through the 13th, we will be out at Edward Jones uh, HQ in St. Louis, where we're going to be talking about candidate experience, Jerry, a, a topic near and dear, obviously, uh, to your heart. Uh, but we've got one seat left uh, for a guest member, so non-member if they would like to attend. If you're interested in interviewing and seeing if you qualify to sit in the room with some of these really, really impressive people, uh, just send an email to info at cxr.works. Uh, anything you'd add for candidate experience, Jerry? No. <laughs> okay. it? No, you know, it's every stakeholder is critical, but only one of them doesn't really have a champion, and that's that's the the candidate. Um, yeah. We need we need internal champions for that stakeholder. Yeah, yeah, good stuff. And then I think uh, August August seventeenth, we've got a uh, virtual session on military recruiting, veteran recruiting. You're not going to miss that. You can also check it out. I'll throw this up here. I think we have these fancy little tools. 
uh, that were, there we go. Anybody who want, anybody's interested, they can check that out. CXR.org slash events. August 17th, we're going to do military recruiting virtual, but also our monthly lecture is coming up on August 24th. We've been doing this. We're in the end. We're wrapping up our second year of bringing in TED speakers, you know, that sort of thing, that level of capital speaker to talk about topics that the leaders of the membership have picked. Uh, and I think we're talking on the 24th of being an inclusive leader. We've got Bernice Feller, uh, Tim, who is a culture and inclusion strategist and a team performance coach. This is a big one. We did negotiations last time. We had tons of people registered. Jerry, we broke a record for registrants for the number of members registered. You want to guess how many people have registered to come to the to the lecture here in August? Um, if it's anywhere near the other one, 80 to 100. Keep going. Uh, I, it's going to be amazing if it's more than that. It's 373. Three. <laughs> 373 members have registered to attend that. Uh, so if you're interested, you want to check that out, uh, cxr.works slash lectures. Uh, you can see that. You can check out the guests. I think we, we show you previous and, of course, um, uh, upcoming members. And if you're, or excuse me, lectures. And if you're a member, you can just dial in and, and watch those. Uh, we keep them recorded in the library. Some of those are open to the public. Uh, we've got one by Antonia Forrester, and then we've got one with uh, Glenn Cathy that we did. Uh, that's a lot of fun. We've opened those up to the public, so you can get into those. If you have trouble, let us know. Did I miss anything, Jerry? No. So I guess we should bring our guest in. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I want to take a second. We'll welcome her in here. There we go. It's Diana, not Diane. It's Diana File, uh, who's coming with us, DF Analytics and Consulting. Uh, Diana, why don't you give us kind of a sort of an elevator pitch on who you are and and kind of why we should be listening to what you have to say. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Um, my dog also wants to give her elevator pitch. Saving your life right now. You just don't realize the dog is saving your life probably. Yes. <laughs> so um, I'm Diana Files. So great to be here. Uh, I'm a research psychologist by background, and I've spent my career creating a bunch of proprietary metrics and approaches to de-bias data science for DEI purposes. Um, currently uh, doing that through my consulting company, DF Analytics, and we are a tech-driven neuroscience-based data analytics strategy and training firm. Um, and we have a suite of services around DEI, as I mentioned. We also do a lot of work around change management, M&A, and HR solutions more broadly, uh, again, from that data-driven strategic perspective. Good stuff. All right. So, so we've got about 15 minutes sort of set aside to talk about some of the work that you're doing. Uh, and what I had kind of asked you, I think, early on, any big, happy to have you share some stuff out, but any big, um, any big call outs, any big takeaways? From my work in general? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I think data uh, science and analytics specifically are one of the most misunderstood and poorly used areas of DEI specifically. Um, and HR in general, I think people come to the HR practice not because they love numbers necessarily. They love people. They love words and stories and helping people. Um, maybe they love operations, but data doesn't always uh, come naturally to folks. And I think uh, when we look at um, classically the way HR has been run or DEI has been run, in both of those areas, we really see a lot of reliance on anecdotal uh, or gut-driven instinct to make decisions. So my mission in life has been to bring data to those fuzzy, unmeasurable things. Um, I believe everything is measurable, and if it's not, you shouldn't be doing it. Yeah, well, it's, a good, it's definitely a good call out. Uh, the 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 science aspect of the art. I mean, Jerry, you were just out at um, so, sort of 
what would you say adjacent related, but you were just out of the PSYOP conference uh, not too long ago. And we were talking about bringing more quantitative uh, tactics, right? More data-driven tactics into recruiting. We've been talking about it for a long time. Remember with Moneyball and data, we were using that all the time in recruiting, but I think it's, it's taken a number of years, I think for us to finally just sort of, um, what, do, what would you say, accept that or really begin to adopt that more broadly? Oh, I think you're muted, Jerry. Did we lose him? Okay, his hat, his hat, he pointed to his hat, maybe his hats. <laughs> so Diana, while, while Jerry's sorting that out, is it, would you, would you say the same thing across the board? I'm sorry, what's the question again? Uh, I managed to unmute myself. <laughs> <laughs> it was, never mind. It's another question. Um, I agree with you, Diana, a hundred percent. If you can't measure it, you can't do anything with it. <laughs> you have, it's, it's not anecdotal. It's nothing. It's you, we really need to be in a position where we can say we, we have a, at least a hypothesis of what, what this number looks like or what this index should be or where we should be in relation to it on some kind of dimension. So yeah. that when we take action, we can see a change or not. And, yeah. and fundamentally, we can then ask ourselves, is there another measure that we're not looking for or or is our action just useless? So um, I, I'm just a fan of the fact that we need, we need to be able to do this in, in uh, talent acquisition and human resources. I, I would agree and just piggyback, piggybacking on that. The flip side of it is people get really interested in measuring things for measurement's sake. And I think the other piece of it is how does how does the measurement impact the business and drive business value? So finding the right measurements rather than overwhelming people with data that frankly is more about the internal efficiency of let's say the HR department um, among itself uh, versus how it drives business value. A classic example of this would be training. So people often report on how many hours of training employees have had. To me, that seems like rather a useless metric in a vacuum uh, because I don't know what they've learned during those hours. I don't know how fast they learn. I don't know how engaged they are um, and what skill sets they've developed. So to me, if you're doing a training analysis, I want to know how that training has impacted whatever the goal of the training was. So if the goal was to increase leadership skill sets, then what was the leadership skill set number or metric? before the training? What was it after and how far did you move the needle? Did it vary among different groups? Was the training easier for some groups to follow? Uh, was there you know, an effect of if you also had a mentor alongside your training journey, then your skill sets developed more quickly because you had one-on-one -on -one interaction? There's a, a lot of different ways we can think about it once we're focused on, okay, the point of this thing is we need better leaders so that we can make more money and be a better company, right? So, so we're talking about when we talk about, I guess, DEI metrics and analytics. I guess, Diana, my my question is: have, have you seen organizations advance past what we typically expect uh, for DEI data, uh, diversity data, to be reported on five years ago? Like, have the last mm -hmm. five years has it gone past people saying they're a veteran or self-identifying? Uh, you know, whether they're their ethnicity or that, you know, their, their gender. I mean, is, is it more than that now? Are we, are we evolving in that front at all? Or are we just gaining steam? I like to believe we are. I mean, I think I've seen the business. Uh, so, so I've been consulting my entire career, which is about mm -hmm. 15, 20 years now. And 
um, the DEI side of the analytics work I do um, has exploded since 2020. Um, that being said, yeah, people got really excited about doing all different kinds of data around DEI, and I can list the different ways we've gotten past it since 2020. But this year has been a challenge, and we've seen a lot of companies regress um, and go back to not taking DEI as seriously in the wake of, um, you know, naysayers gain, gaining voice politically, uh, you know, the recent SCOTUS ruling being a classic example of that. Um, what you're talking about is really how uh, classically, you know, civil rights or EEO data is reported um, with diversity numbers. There's a lot of problems in the way that uh, data is was traditionally handled, um, not least of which I think there is a tacit encouragement to get 100% of your data in there. And so HR directors are often guessing people's uh, identities and filling them in for them instead of having the employees fill it in because they can't get employees to disclose their own data. So that's just one small example. When you look at DEI more broadly, uh, we have a five-part framework that we like to think of when we think of DEI data. Diversity is the first one, the diversity of your workforce currently, but also your applicant pool and all the stages of that applicant pool. And where do you see leaks in that pipeline? So we're talking when the people first learn about your company, when they meet, uh, when they submit an application, when they meet the HR uh, screener, when they go through an interview process, when they get an offer, when they uh, accept an offer, all of those are stages mm -hmm. where you're gonna leak out people. And so if you're seeing a shift in the proportions of different races, ethnicities, gender, veteran status, LGBTQ, or any number of other dimensions, you're going to want to understand what's happening in that stage where we have an opportunity to improve it um, so that we see more consistency. The second part uh, after the D uh, or the diversity focus uh, for me is engagement and culture, uh, inclusivity. How do mm -hmm. people, once they're in your workforce, actually interact and engage with each other so that employees are included, um, people feel like they belong. You get that data from surveys, focus groups, interviews, you know, engagement survey data, exit survey data, stay interview data, uh, pulse survey data, onboarding survey data. Anytime you interact with employees, you can also see a number of different metrics around uh, how they work and collaborate with each other, which we can talk about um, without actually having to run surveys. Um, the third part I talk about is accountability and leadership. So that's where we look at corporate governance. We look at how the board is structured, how the uh, leaders are structured in terms of the diversity of the corporate leadership, um, their commitments they've made, uh, any past DEI work that the organization has done, what are the KPIs, are leaders held accountable? Is it part of their goals, their incentives? Um, pay equity fits in there as well, and a variety of other things. Um, we look at brand uh, perception or external visibility, um, so that could be like marketplace visibility, um, and that is, you know, your customer feedback, are your customers from different uh, segments giving the same feedback, or are you getting specific feedback from certain customer segments? What's the market penetration in different customer segments, and how can we increase market penetration by increasing both the diversity and the engagement and the inclusion of different folks in our, um, in our organization? And then um, moving into the last part, uh, we look at external partnerships. So that would be your supplier diversity, your mm. corporate responsibility efforts. All of these things can have metrics attached to them, internships, um, ways that you are investing in the future of talent uh, so that you're not just looking at who's applying right now, uh, but how are you nurturing relationships with different communities so that you're building talent. I mean, as some organizations call it, kindergarten to careers. 
So yeah, the more progressive organizations are really taking a broad look. And I would say my clients mostly are trying to expand that way. And you've got stodgier industries and organizations that still very much focus on the D. I think in the wake of what's been happening, especially with the affirmative action repeal, um, people are going to have to either um, abandon DEI and, you know, fold their business and become dinosaurs, or if they're going to engage in DEI, they're going to have to look more expansively beyond just the diversity numbers, because there's going to be more impediments legally in place for them to focus on those targets as well. But I feel like a big devil's advocate, right? So we've yeah. been doing this a while. I feel like this this interest, this this cyclical wave of interest in, in diversity, uh, it's not the first time we've seen it. I've been in the space about 30 years. It's not the first time we see it. We see this yeah. big push. There's some sort of social event or social injustice that happens. I'll use the murder of George Floyd as a really great example, yeah. uh, unfortunately. But th there's this swelling interest all of a sudden about, you know, we we're supposed to make this right. We should be better. Uh, we should know by now. We're Now we're going to invest in doing the mm -hmm. research. We're going to hire more diversity at the sea level. We're going to hire somebody who's in charge of all diversity at yeah. the sea level. We're going to, you know. But then what inevitably seems to happen is this wanes. And then we see some of those diversity leaders who have been hired put into more like project manager roles or begin to slowly fade mm. into the background or the passion of collecting the data and doing something actionable with the data, you know, and these insights seems to wane. And I heard you when you were saying like it, it does, it does kind of pitter off a bit uh, and maybe it's political climate, but, but this seems like to me, this is not the first time this has happened. Yeah. And I, I just love your take on, you know, is, is this just going to be a constant roller coaster for us if, you know, pushing organizations? Because I think we said the last time and the time for the time for they're going to have to close their doors and they were going to have to go under. Yeah. Um, I mean, I agree with you. Yes, it's cyclical. And the trends demographically in our country are increasingly pointing to there will be a point at which we are going to be a majority minority culture, right? Like mm -hmm. already, I think the demographic of teenagers, 16 years old, that range is majority yeah. people of color, um, if I'm not mistaken. And so uh, it might take longer than a few uh, decades. Maybe it'll take our generation, right? Um, my generation to be, you know, the next generation uh, to see, you know, the full swing and shift. Um, mm -hmm. But increasingly, organizations are going to see that their workforce, they won't be able to reach the workforce they want, fight for the talent they need and innovate the way they need to serve the future because of where the market, um, you know, where, of where the economics and the demographics are heading. And I hope that organizations that are forward thinking will, con will look at the solid evidence because as you say yes it's cyclical and we also have 30 or 40 or however many decades years of evidence showing that connections between profitability financial impact roi of investment in people um and dei investment is strong so you can either look at the data or you can ignore it and i guess you'll always have companies that do you know foolish um short term kind of thinking in terms of how they make decisions you always have those companies so it sounds to me like you're saying that with the demographic shift that's coming, and by the way, if you're currently a majority and worried about being a minority, maybe that's because of how you treat minorities, but that's a whole nother podcast, <laughs> whole nother podcast. But it, it sounds to me like with the demographic shift coming up, what you're saying is even though that's cyclical, we're taking two steps forward with only one step back because the I demographic think so. shift- I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I don't have a crystal ball, right? I, um, but I do watch the trends and, um, you know, I am seeing people take it seriously that are, you know, kind of forward thinking. Um, and I hope more companies do. Well, so let me, I'll ask you another question, which is kind of, so Jerry and I do a series of benchmarks and we have, I think we have three open benchmark surveys now 
our members will call us up and say, hey, we'd like to know what other orgs are doing for this or that. And we push that survey out and it comes back. One of the things we tell them is while this information is really helpful, uh, when we collect it from a larger audience, the best place you should be measuring is against yourself. Mm. Jerry, Jerry has a stance on what is the average whatever. And I don't, Jerry, if you want to jump jump in with that, but when somebody asks for an average number, but I guess my my question to you is, do you sort of see the same thing? Or do people come to you and say, I need to compare myself against the whole industry or the whole world and yeah. they haven't kind of looked inward yet? Or is how does that work in your space? I mean, I think it's a push-pull, right? I think some organizations are really excited about uh, doing the work internally for reasons that don't require com competition. Um, mm -hmm. Most of those organizations also, I've noticed, will be like, oh, we're so unique, we're different, There's, we don't really have a lot of competitors. Um, and uh, so for them, you'll see that uh, they are looking more at themselves. Um, and maybe they've done some of that internal work initially, now they want to expand and they are like, okay, so what are our, what's our competition doing to get ideas, right? How, what's the like latest and, and greatest? Um, I will also say that benchmarks are really tricky um, because uh, if no one in your industry has gotten this right, then how do you know measuring yourself against them is the right benchmark? Um, so a classic example of this going back to diversity data is uh, people will look at the kind of available talent in a specific region, given the assumptions of how your recruiting strategy currently works and yeah. kind of keeping all things equal. So I had a client in Long Island uh, that had, it was a nonprofit, it was small, um, and we did some numbers on how they were 80% white and 90% uh, female and all this stuff. And they were like, well, what do you want? Long Island is a white place. Uh, and it's hard to find that talent here. We recruit locally. We require people to come into the office. Mm -hmm. This is the pool of talent. Um, that's what we've got. And it's like, how do we then work together to think about evolving the strategy so that maybe you are going to invest in stipends for people to come from and relocate from a different region? Um, maybe you will invest in you know building stronger relationship with the communities around you uh, and just thinking more broadly. Um, I think let's say another example. So I've worked with some law firms where same question, right? Mm -hmm. It's really hard to find people of color who are lawyers, especially women of color. Um, the legal profession is just heavily white. What do you want from us? Right. And um, when they benchmark against each other, it's like, oh, we're 80% white and the benchmark is 85. So I guess we're okay. Um, versus how do we look systemically at the um, education system and the things that companies can do to influence the ways that people um, get weeded out and the systemic barriers that prevent them from getting the law degree in the first place so that we can expand the pipeline and the talent pool uh, much more uh, broadly than we could if we were just looking at people who are already at the professional experience level with the credentials you're expecting. So kind of expanding to look at the labor market uh, more broadly than, than people have been looking at it to date. I look, love the way you're looking at thinking it through from an from an innovation point of view is really the key. And, and it's why I think a lot of people get screwed up with benchmarking is because the purpose of benchmarking is not to find the best practice. It's to be inspired about competitive practices. Mm. And if once you've deconstructed why someone wants to benchmark, you focus in on those key things that people are doing or not doing, not so much to copy them, but to be inspired about the kind of thinking, whether you're going over the wall, through the wall, under the wall, or around the wall in some way, shape, or yeah. form. 
And, and that, I think, is why there's such value in peers having conversations about what they do in an open and honest way. And, and that's why I'm yeah. such a fan of, of that approach to learning. I agree. And one thing I forgot to say is also some companies will do the benchmarks before they do the internal work, as you pointed out, Chris. And often what happens is we've tried to do some internal work. We've run into roadblocks. The way we get buy-in with leadership is by m kind of lighting a fire under them to show, hey, look, 10 of 11 of our 10 out of our 11 competitors, you know, are all doing this more than us are succeeding at it. Here are the numbers. Here's how their financial impact has grown. Um, we're going we're losing ground. Right. So that kind of blows away the resistance of we're making money. It's okay. Right. We don't need to do this. When I worked for Johnson and Johnson many, many years ago, the rule in that corporation for almost 80 years at the time was that when, when 80% of our, um, admired competitors were doing it, we would then consider doing it. And once we decided we would do it, we would do it better than anyone else. Did it work? It worked fine for, you know, the tw the 10 years that I was there until I said, you know, I really like to do something first. And that's when I left Jane. <laughs> yeah. How about we don't wait to jump on the bandwagon? Yeah. Why don't we create the bandwagon? Yeah. I threw, I threw a question up here. Didn't, didn't know it was going to cover half of Jerry there. If you're watching, I apologize. Uh, Juan's got a big question here, so I'll take it off in a second. But he says he finds it interesting how individuals are choosing to identify themselves. He says he's noticed a number of individuals that are from a mixed background, but who are identifying as white. Is that a question or? A uh, it looks like it looks like he's making a statement, but I wonder. I mean, it brings me to the to you know sort of full circle back to when you had said earlier what I heard you say was survey, 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 survey. <laughs> yeah, and it's yeah. it's I don't know a better way to collect some of that information. Uh, but but I'm just wondering, do, do we see a lot of that? I wouldn't call it gamification, but just kind of really, you know, fudging the corners mm. to, to, you know, just try to yeah. work. That's a really interesting question. Um, you know, we don't know anything about other how other people choose to identify themselves unless they tell yeah. us, or unless we ask them, which is why I don't encourage people to guess. Um, that being said, you, you know, you could speculate. There could be a number of different phenomena going on. Maybe it doesn't feel safe to identify about who I feel I am. And if I'm white passing, I'd rather kind of go along with whatever privilege I get um, by saying that. Maybe the categories in the survey or the um, system you're using to identify people are not uh, fleshed out enough and are not reflective. I know like the government categories basically are 10 years behind whatever people actually identify as. Uh, perfect example, Middle Eastern, North African, not a category, but a lot of organizations, it's not a government category, but a lot of organizations yeah. are adapting it. Um, uh, because those folks don't know where else to put themselves and often they're not white. Um, so, you know, it could be lots of different things going on there. Uh, I, I also think there's a, um, a tendency, especially with the younger generation to avoid labels. Like I don't want to label myself. I don't want to mm. put myself in a box. Um, and it's okay to say, I don't know. Right. Or I don't choose to, or choose not to identify. Yeah. Here's got, uh, Yamahira. I hope I say that uh, correctly. Uh, I was always uh, asked to mark white because there was not a Hispanic Latino option. That's surprising because uh, the government has one in the census, but maybe that I don't know when that was developed or added. Yeah. Um, and also that's often listed as, uh, I think, race and ethnicity separate. And one of them has Hispanic Latino or not Hispanic Latino. And the other one has all the other um, 
categories, which I find really confusing. Yeah, your your comment about it being a safe space sort of resonates. We we had a and with the military recruiting uh, veteran recruiting event coming up, oftentimes organizations struggle uh, to gather that demographic of data because a lot of times veterans aren't aren't identified. Yeah. Uh, and unfortunately, what they don't realize, I think, and what what we're talking with our leaders is they're not doing a good job of explaining why the data is being collected, that it is to get yeah. more funding, to help more veterans, to move these programs forward. Not, like you said, from a safe space perspective, not to put them in a bucket or or sort of, sort of yeah. alienate or segregate them so much. And I wonder if we have an opportunity to do that from a self-reporting standpoint with ethnicity and gender. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, one of the services we provide is helping organizations uh, run communication campaigns around data gathering in general. and creating communication strategies. We have a number of folks who have very senior experience on our team who do that. Um, and one thing we find is self-identification uh, campaigns. The people are not good at communicating uh, in order to get that engagement um, because A, you need to communicate how the data will be used. B, you need to communicate how the data will be protected. Um, and C, what often happens is organizations fail to acknowledge that, hey, we've messed this up in the past. People have messed this up in the past. This is this data has been has a history of being misused um, because, like, you know, let's not talk about that. Right. Um, but getting vulnerable and actually being authentic and saying, look, we recognize that this data, uh, you know, is is very personal to you. Here's how we're going to protect it and treat it. Um, here's the thing. Here are the there's the list of people who have access to it, and the list yeah. of people who well, no everyone else won't. And there's the encryption. Like you know, as much information and transparency as you're willing to to offer to people, and then say, look, if we've screwed this up in the past, like we are committed to not screwing it up again. Yeah. I think the communication aspect is a big call. It's yeah. and, and here's how it will be um, deleted. Yep. Here's the yes, and you yep. should have a policy around you know data security, data privacy. People don't often have those, um, and especially like we write policies specific to DEI data because they should be uh, it should be treated differently and dealt with differently. And in a large organization, okay, what are the parameters? Once I get my you know if I'm a manager and I get a list of headcount, um, and here's the breakdown by five different demographic groups, who am I allowed to share it with? Um, yeah. <laughs> right. And people will share it freely if they don't know if they don't know there's a policy because there might not be a policy. Or they hold then... it. They hold it so tight that people who need it in order to do their jobs don't have access. That's right, because it's always easier to restrict, yep. um, kind of a blanket restriction, than to know and understand the nuance, which requires working with legal um, and crafting kind of forward-thinking policies where you really balance the transparency and the confidentiality yeah. issues. Um, the other thing I'd say about self-disclosure, um, leveraging your ERGs is a really easy way to um, increase self-disclosure rates. And that's a whole nother topic for another day. Um, but people do um, find that having a safe space where you could talk about people of similar identity groups um, and helping, maybe giving them talking points or helping them gather data in different ways um, can increase disclosure rates as well, rather than here's this announcement that came by email. How am I supposed to trust it? I don't even know this person. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Well, look, uh, Dana, we asked this, uh, we're kind of at times, but so I want to make sure that we get, give you a chance to answer. We ask all of our guests this question at the end of the show. Uh, if you were going to write a book about this topic and where it's at today and the work that you're doing, what, what would the title of that book be and why? So the title would be bringing hard numbers to soft guesses how to de-bias traditional research methods. It's a working title. Yeah. Do you have um, a working book? Is there maybe, are you already drinking? I'm yeah. second to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> one day when I have lots of free time and someone to ghostwrite it for me. But um, yeah, why? But my tagline, uh, my company tagline is bringing hard numbers to soft guesses. And I think uh, the reason for that title is because I think people, um, you know, spend too much, as we talked about, spend too much time uh, guessing or assuming that things can't be uh, quantified. Um, and the subtitle is, is debiasing traditional research methods. I think the way that research traditionally is conducted, certainly the way I learned to conduct research, psychological research on human beings mm -hmm. is full of bias. And, and I've spent my life trying to debias it and find areas and uh, uh, new techniques to amplify the voices of groups that are historically marginalized by those methods. Yeah, love that. Well, so, so let us ask you, present company excluded, who gets <laughs> the first signed copy of your, of your book? My husband. Oh, that's nice. Because <laughs> I couldn't have done it without him. <laughs> that's lovely. Well, look, Diana, not Diane, Diana. Uh, we're, we're so grateful for you to give us a lot of time. Much gratitude. We know that you're super busy. Uh, and we just want to thank you for the work that you're doing and, and putting thank leaders you. forward. And it's it's such an amazing endeavor. Uh, so thanks for leaning all the way in to, to just help push stuff forward. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. This has been a really fun discussion. Yeah, fun chat. I'm going to put you in the green room for just two seconds, so don't go anywhere. Sure. Uh, we'll drop sure. you in there. There we go. And then really quickly, Jerry, uh, I thought we could just give a quick mention and a follow-up. TA Talk Tank, it's been out for a couple months now. Yes. Um, we have a nonprofit, for those who, who aren't aware, we have a nonprofit uh, that has created this. It does a number of projects, uh, platforms, both in-person charity events, that sort of thing. But we launched uh, a couple of months ago, tatalktank.com. And Jerry, you give a way better elevator pitch of what this is uh, than I do. My elevator pitch ends up going like for five minutes. So why, why don't you share what, what TA Talk Tank is? Because we got about 150. But I've never gave the same thing twice. I think it's the softest approach to the word mentor that we can get right now. And essentially, it's, it's a non-formal way for you to pick the brain of just about anybody who's interested and willing to, to talk to you about your job, your career, or your life stage that's, you know, connected to those two things. And, and the fact is, all of us want to be able to tap into that kind of um, thought, wisdom, whatever, of people who've done it before you. Um, and the fact is, you're willing, most of us are willing to do that as well. So all of this is, is a platform where literally 100 plus people have profiled themselves as willing to talk to you and some indication of who they are and what they're about. And my feeling is do two things. One, take a look at that list. There's got to be a few people that you go, oh, I'd really like to pick the brain of that person. <laughs> and and if, if it works for you, then profile yourself as one of the people on Talk Back. Yeah, you can be, I'm both. You can be a mentor or mentee or coach or coachee or someday we'll come up with a better term. But you can, you can list stuff you want to talk about and list stuff you want to learn about and, and do a nice matchup. And it's just this. It's maybe a 30-minute conversation with somebody. It's not a big formal program. And it's free. It's from CXR Foundation. Uh, it's TA Talk Tank Labor of Love. Lots of just wonderful people have been part of that. Uh, program to put it together. We just encourage everybody, everybody to get out there. And Especially if you're out. in transition, this is it. You, you, oh, you're, yeah. you're late to getting this done. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're just, you know, slow, slow adopters or you know, fast followers. Let's call them fast followers. Yeah. <laughs>
All right. With that, we'll see everybody next week. Say bye, Jerry. Bye. Thanks for listening to the CXR channel. Please subscribe to CXR on your favorite podcast resource and leave us a review while you're at it. Learn more about CXR at our website, cxr.works, facebook.com and twitter.com slash career crossroads and on Instagram at career X roads. We'll catch you next time. Oh,